most of the rest of my sermon time with you. Uh, from here on in, I'd like to devote to pondering the life and teachings of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, and I'll begin that this morning. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Jesus. I figure in 42 years, everybody should be able to title one sermon, Jesus. And, uh, and that's this sermon. Um, I have here uh, a book from my library called uh, Da Jesus Book. Um, it's the New Testament. And the New Testament could easily be called Da Jesus Book. In fact, I think it's a better title than the New Testament. But, um, which is not an inspired title, by the way. But um, uh, you also could call the whole Bible Da Jesus Book. And uh, you get a volume one and volume two. Um, but you could also call the four Gospels Da Jesus Books. Because the four Gospels, remarkably, are not only the, the ones that tell us the story of Jesus, but I think it's pretty, um, it's worthy of us stopping and realizing that the four Gospels have nothing in them that's not about Jesus. Every single story, at least as far as I know, in every uh, one of the four Gospels is about Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that he's even born yet, because like the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, um, you know, Jesus isn't a character in the story, but it's in preparation for his coming, and it's his coming is a part of the story because that's what you know Zacharias is told that that's what it's about. So it's uh, and so we have these uh, amazing books. I don't think this is true about any other historical part of the Bible. You know, certainly the stories of Moses, they have little uh, digressions or little stories about this side issue that isn't about Moses. But nothing in the Gospels that's not about Jesus. Um, there's no rabbit trails with about other characters and their relationship or their issues that isn't a part of, you know, even the one where the disciples are arguing who's going to be first in the kingdom. It comes back to Jesus. He's a character in the story. And this uh, shows us that the important thing in the Gospels is not the plot. It's not the drama. It's the main character. Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so every sermon from the Gospels is inevitably, if it's done well, about Jesus. Now we're going to, I'm going to read two verses from the story of uh, Simeon in Luke 2 to get us started. Luke 2, 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now you remember the circumstances. 
where uh, Jesus is 40 days old. He's brought to his, by his parents to the temple in Jerusalem. And this old prophet, Simeon, is told by God that this is the Messiah. So he comes up and he takes Jesus into his arms and he pronounces a blessing over him. And then when he's done pronouncing a blessing over the baby Jesus, he turns and he pronounces this up to his parents. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. So I'm going to start with the first part in verse 34. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. You know, remarkably, people were divided in their response to Jesus. That is, some were attracted to him, others were repulsed by him. Some saw him as their rescuer, others saw him as their ruiner. And we see this over and over in the Gospels. John 7:12 There was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. John 7:40 to 44 Some of the multitude therefore when they heard these words that Jesus was speaking were saying this certainly is a prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. John 9.16 Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And then the final passage, John 10.19-21 there arose a division again among the Jews because of these words. And many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So this remarkable division occurs when Jesus shows up in a people that were much more united before he came than after he had come. And this has been borne out down through history. Jesus has been the most loved human being who ever lived. But Jesus has also been the most hated 
human being who ever lived. For 2,000 years, his followers all over the world have gathered together regularly to praise and adore him. For 2,000 years, his followers have whispered his name on their deathbeds and called out to him in their troubles. For 2,000 years, people all over the world have celebrated his birth and his death and other events of his very short life. Many have willingly died for him. Many more have willingly lived for him. For 2,000 years, those who love him have been trying to get others to love him. Even investing great amounts of time and energy. Even traveling to the most obscure places on earth. Even sacrificing friends and family, careers and comforts. Just to help others learn of him. That they too might come to love him. And think of all the love songs that have been written to him. But Jesus was also the most hated man in history. He was not a mass murderer. He never lifted his hand to strike another human being as far as we know. He never did anything that most people would think of as evil. He was just a Jewish teacher who went around the countryside teaching people and touching people for three years in the first century Palestine. But he is far and away the most hated man in all of human history. He was hated as soon as he was born. Herod tried to kill him. He even being willing to slaughter many innocent people to get to him. He was hated when he grew up. Though he'd done nothing wrong, people wanted to kill him over and over again. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And they have both seen and hated me and my father in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Those are both from John 15. He was crucified by officials who threw out all the ordinary procedures of how to handle judicial cases. By officials who were very persnickety about doing all the procedures properly. And yet in this case, they just abandoned them all. And this continued down through history, even to our day. In some countries, loving him is punishable by death. Some nations will tolerate almost anything being brought into their country. Anything except Jesus. Even over Christmas, I think you may have heard, many Christians were massacred in Nigeria. In the U.S., probably his name is used most as a curse word. Why? What did he do to them? They hated him without a cause. But none of this diminishes his honor. In fact, it enhances his honor because it confirms what he told us, that he would indeed divide mankind 
I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Matthew 10. But why was Jesus so divisive? Not because of his ethnicity or his family connections. Not because of his political positions or ambitions. The reason Jesus was so divisive was because he offended people. He was a man of many scandals. In three years, he had more scandals than any politician in history. First of all, there was the scandal of grace. Showing mercy to people not worthy of God's favor. The scandal of associating with notoriously sinful people, like tax collectors and the sexually immoral. Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. The woman at the well who had five husbands, and the one she's living with now wasn't her husband. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus was constantly reaching out to sinners. And it disturbed many people who were not, who did not see themselves in that category. Who felt like he was unrighteous to extend himself to the unrighteous. And then there was the scandal of race. For in a context where the Jews refused contact with Gentiles and Samaritans, Jesus befriended both. And there was the scandal of insulting the righteous. Read his fiery speech in Matthew 23 that he delivered to the Pharisees. And then there's the scandal of not keeping the rules and even criticizing accepted traditions. Healing on the Sabbath, picking grain on the Sabbath, not washing before eating, giving to the temple in lieu of giving to parents, which he condemned, even though it was an accepted tradition. And then there's the scandal of elevating women in a society that did anything but. And the scandal of dishonoring the mighty. Like when he refused to answer Pilate and when he called Herod a fox. The scandal of demanding too much of people. Like the rich young ruler. When he said, you must sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Or when he said that anyone who calls his brother a fool is, is worthy of the fire of hell. When he said that lusting after a woman in your heart is the same as adultery. And he gave, reaffirmed that God hated divorce in a society where it was easy to get one. frequently offended by what he taught and many people left, left him and stopped following him, stopped listening to him because of the offensive things that he said. But the greatest scandal, of course, was the scandal of being and acknowledging who he was. Messiah, Lord, and God. The scandal of claiming to be the Son of God. Claiming to be equal to God. 
the scandal of accepting worship. Most of the most serious religious people, the most Bible-oriented people, the most zealous for the Lord people, were actually scandalized by Jesus. They thought he was outrageous, offensive, repugnant. It's not just that many didn't like him. It's not just that many didn't agree with him. It's that many were morally outraged by him. In their minds, the son of righteousness offended their moral sensibilities. Okay, so Jesus divides mankind and he scandalizes non-believers. We can see that. But that's not where it stops. It also gets personal. We read, we read and talked about Luke 2.34, but there's also Luke 2.35, where Simeon goes on to tell Mary that a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And by the way, the parenthesis, you know, I've told you before that in the original Greek, there's no parenthesis, there's no uh, punctuation at all. So this is the, the translators trying to help it be understandable, but the parentheses here are not um, inspired. You know, here... Uh, John is talking about how what trouble Jesus is going to bring to the world and then he turns to Mary and says and a sword will pierce your soul also now Mary eventually watched Jesus die on the cross and that's certainly a sword piercing through her soul event But I think there's a principle here as well. It's not just the unrighteous who get humbled and who suffer as a result of Jesus. Everyone does. Jesus scandalizes us too. He divides each one of us too. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4. You see, it wasn't just Jesus' enemies who were scandalized by things Jesus said and did. Even his friends were frequently offended by him. Mary was offended that Jesus didn't rush to her house when her brother Lazarus was sick. The disciples were scandalized that Jesus allowed a woman to pour expensive ointment on his feet instead of selling it to give to the poor. Peter, on several occasions, was so disturbed by things Jesus said that he rebuked him. Even John the Baptist was scandalized. 
When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words of his disciples, words by his disciples, saying this question to Jesus, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, Go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But why would Jesus offend his own friends? He offended his own friends because he loved them so much. Because they needed to be offended sometimes. When Mary sent urgent word to Jesus that Lazarus, her brother, was dying, you remember what Jesus did? This is so remarkable in John 11, 5 and 6. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, and you expect it to go on to say, he rushed to go to Lazarus to heal him. But it says, so, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved them, he delayed and wasn't there for Lazarus. And Lazarus died. It was because he loved him. Not because he didn't love him. Now, without Christ, there is no hope. It's only because I have lost Christ in some way that I lose hope. There is no other place to go. But having the Christ who gives hope also means having the Christ who makes holy. And that means having the Christ who sometimes offends us. Who sometimes works against our earthly ambitions. Sometimes allows things to happen in our lives that we don't think are good for us. And don't make any sense to us. Jesus came to redeem us, to adopt us, to forgive us. But he also came to change us and purify us. And when we come to Christ, we get redeemed and remade. And it's not because moral reform is God's ultimate priority. It's because sin gets in the way of our joy, our hope, our faith. Sin obscures our ability to see Him and know Him and enjoy Him. Jesus didn't come to soothe and reaffirm. He didn't come to coddle our fleshly desires or confirm our prejudices. He came to speak into our lives to cast down our idols, to get rid of our garbage, as well as to redeem us and forgive us and adopt us. And you can't welcome Jesus the Redeemer on with one hand and hold off 
Jesus the rearranger with the other hand. It's all the same Jesus. It's easy for us to say, I'm on Jesus' side. But we prove we're on Jesus' side by letting him correct us. By being willing to be shown that we're wrong. By inviting him to show us the sins we're blind to. In John 15, Jesus talked about having his word abide in our hearts. But sometimes his word is sharper than a sword. Sometimes his word is like a hammer which shatters a rock. Jeremiah 23, 29. So any real study of Jesus is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to disturb as well as delight. It's not just people out there who get offended with Jesus. It's us in here. And for Christians, the great temptation is to recast Jesus into someone who corrects the world, but doesn't really correct us. It seems to me extremely rare to hear Christians talk about how God has convicted them of a sin or of an idol. The Jesus of so much modern Christianity only soothes and reaffirms and makes us feel safe. But the Lion of Judah is not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. The real Jesus is out to shake up our earthly mindedness and that can be scary and unsettling. Part of what is offensive about Jesus is that he brings change in areas we don't want to change. He throws out things we like and feel like we need. Things we derive comfort and security from. Jesus is not just a doer who gets things done. He's an undoer who gets things undone. And I'm not just talking about the sins and idolatries that we struggle with. Often the bigger issues are the idolatries which are a part of our belief system. The sins we don't think are sins. The sins we don't see as being sins. Not just the unintentional sins, but the sins we think are good and which God thinks are detestable. Luke 16, 15. The things we proudly acknowledge which we actually ought to be ashamed of. We have a certain sphere within which we don't mind being challenged. But we don't want to be challenged about our idols, about the things from which we get our security. Christ is our friend. As John Newton said in the hymn that we sang last week, he is the one above all others who well deserves the name of friend. But a true friend is not friendly to our darker instincts. He's not a friend of our idols. And that's exactly what each one of us needs. We need a friend who will not only love us as we are, 
not only be there for us in our hard times, not only comfort us in our pain, but who will tell us what we need to hear and confront us when they need to be confronted. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27.6 And that's who Jesus is. And a good illustration of this is the Sermon on the Mount. Which we'll talk about at the end of this month. Was there ever a more challenging sermon preached? I don't want to discourage you as we come to this series. I don't want to make you not look forward to it. I'm hoping that because you know that what Jesus says is said in love, that you'll want to hear and listen and watch and learn. I'm like you. There's things I don't want to let go of. But ultimately, those things aren't helping me. They're hurting me. They're making me unhealthy as a person. And I need them to be removed for me to enjoy all that I might enjoy in my life on this earth. And aren't we all looking forward to that day when we are presented before the Lord without spot and blemish or wrinkle? Well, that process is underway. And it's a process we must welcome, not flee and avoid. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his redeeming work, his sacrificial death, his amazing example, his wisdom, and his teachings. Thank you also, Lord, for his rebukes and how we need them. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be more than just willing, but to be eager for him to come in and rearrange us and throw the bad stuff out and bring in new furniture and uh, make us the way that we ought to be, that we might know Christ more fully and enjoy him more deeply and reflect him more accurately in this dark world. Thank you now for the chance to remember him as we come to the Lord's Supper. Please be with us in it. Please help us to draw near to our precious Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.